Intro to Volume 1 This biography is unlike any book you have read before. Of course, there is drama. Around him the house groaned as it twisted to death. Plaster fell from the ceiling like rain and burst from the walls like popcorn. A loud crack echoed down the hall. The floor jerked as the house shifted, sending Bill crashing into the closet door. Another crack sounded close behind the first, along with the noise of splintering wood. The flood was ripping the building from its foundation. Running down the hallway, Bill plunged through the front door, not knowing that the porch had just been separated from the house. He landed in icy water. But natural drama is just the beginning. Then comes the supernatural, and nothing is ever the same. Supernatural, The Life of William Branham Volume 1 Books 1, 2, and 3 Covering the years from 1909 to 1950 Written by Owen Jorgensen Narrated by Kathy Strew Somewhere in this world there is a sincere teenager who is searching for answers to questions like these. Does God really exist? If so... Who is he? And where is he? And is this God interested in my life? To you, young searcher, this book is dedicated, for so once was I. Owen Jorgensen Introduction In 1971, while I was a student at Seattle Pacific College, I read Gordon Lindsay's short book called William Branham, a man sent from God. I was so astounded by William Branham's life and ministry that I started reading everything I could find about him. I was 19 years old, and at that time my goal was to become a writer. I recognized that here was one of the greatest stories of our time, and I wondered if I could write a detailed biography about this extraordinary man. Realistically, at that young age, I did not have the skills necessary to organize a massive project, let alone write it, so it isn't surprising that my dream gradually faded. The years passed, I got married, had four children, and tried my hand at different jobs until in 1978, I returned to work on my family's wheat farm. In 1987, when I was 35 years old, I took some winter quarter classes at the Wenatchee Valley College, eager to learn some new skills that would help me in the business of agriculture. I took a course in accounting, a course on computers, and just for fun, a course in composition writing. I turned in my first writing assignment for the teacher to evaluate. When she handed it back, I saw she had written across the top of the page, Can I use this as an example for the rest of the class? On every assignment I turned in, this teacher wrote the same words on the top of my first page. After four weeks of this, I thought, hmm, I wonder if God is trying to tell me something. A few days later, while standing in the college library, I prayed, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? Instantly, I was hammered by a thought so clear and powerful that I knew it was God speaking to me. He said, I want you to write a biography of William Branham. I was stunned. 
It had been twelve years since I had last thought about writing such a book. Without a moment of deliberation, I said, I'm going to write William Branham's life story, even if it takes me ten years to do it. It ended up taking me twenty-three years to finish. There is a lot of information available on William Branham's ministry, but be warned, Internet sites that criticize him are woefully misinformed. Of course, when I started this project in 1985, there wasn't an Internet. My original sources included newspaper articles, magazine articles, books, and several short films from the 1950s and 60s, as well as many people who were eyewitnesses to the events I have written about, especially the events in the last three books of this series. But mostly, at first, I gathered information from William Branham's recorded sermons. Over a thousand of his sermons were recorded on magnetic tape from 1947 to 1965. I listened to these sermons one by one, in the order that he preached them. This process was in itself gratifying and inspiring. I felt like I was following this great evangelist all over the world, which, in one sense, I was. When he told stories about his life, I typed them into my word processor. This was before his sermons became available on a computer database program. I'll say more about this computer database program in my endnotes. Often he told stories about things that had just happened to him recently. With the event fresh in his mind, he not only told what happened and what was said, he often told what he was thinking and feeling making it easier for me as a biographer to get it right. After two years of research, I had collected over a thousand pages of single-spaced typewritten notes. That's when I said to myself, Owen, are you going to write this book or not? You certainly have enough information to start writing, so either write or else stop telling yourself you are writing a book. First, I had to organize my notes. I bought 56 file folders, and marked them with each year of William Branham's life. Reading through my notes, I figured out when each story happened, and then cut it out with scissors, placing it in the file folder for that year. Then I opened the file folder marked 1909 and read everything in it so the details would be fresh in my mind. Finally, I turned on my word processor, took a deep breath, and began. Originally, I wrote the first chapter two different ways. My first draft began, William Branham was born in Kentucky in the year 1909. It read like a high school English report. All the facts were there, but it lacked something. I thought, there is so much drama here, why can't I use that drama to draw readers into the story? I wrote the first chapter again using this concept, and I liked the results so I continued with this method throughout the series. Months later, my 13-year-old daughter Hannah was lying on her stomach on our living room floor reading the loose pages of this manuscript. I think she was on chapter 5. I think she was on chapter 5 when Hannah looked up at me wide-eyed and said, Dad, this is really good. Then she went back to reading. That let me know that I was on the right track. Since then, I have received many letters from people all over the world who have been blessed by this account of William Branham's life. Today, as I write this introduction, there are several hundred thousand copies printed in English 
of Supernatural, The Life of William Branham, Books 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. They have also been translated into a number of other languages. See supernaturalchristianbooks.com That is S-U-P-E-R-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-B-O-O-K-S dot C-O-M The reason we, that is Reverend Perry Green of Tucson Tabernacle in Tucson, Arizona, and I originally printed this series in single volumes was simply because I was still writing the series. We printed each book as it was completed. Now that the final chapter in this biography of William Branham is finished, I am reprinting the first five books along with the sixth book in a three-volume set. I hope this biography reminds you how close Jesus Christ is to you right now, and even more importantly, how much he cares. Owen Jorgensen, January 2010 Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, New King James Version Chapter 2, His First Vision, covering the years 1912 to 1916 Charles Branham had enclosed enough money with his letter so that Ella could hire a wagon for the move. She had few possessions to load, other than her three squirming boys. New Albany lay over a hundred miles north of Burksville, and being almost due to deliver, Ella dreaded the journey. But to three-year-old Billy, who had never seen beyond his mountain cabin, the trip seemed like an exciting adventure. He was especially impressed by the narrow, flat wooden bridge that crossed the Ohio River between Louisville, Kentucky, and New Albany, Indiana. Another ten miles north brought them to their new home, the small town of Utica, Indiana. On May 27, 1912, Ella bore her fourth son, naming him Melvin. That summer, Charles worked for a local farmer. It was man-killing labor. Sometimes he had to trudge behind a horse and plow for twelve hours a day, sweating under the scorching sun. More than once he came home with his shirt sunburned into his back, and Ella had to cut the shirt off with scissors. When the corn came up, Charles spent his days with a goose-necked hoe, chopping creepers from between the rows. At first his hands blistered and bled. Later they formed calluses as hard as leather. He suffered all this for a mere 75 cents a day. That fall, Charles went back to logging. It came to him more naturally than farming. He had grown up in the woods and had started logging at an early age. Although he weighed only 150 pounds, Charles bulged with muscles and was so skillful a logger that he could load a 900-pound log on a wagon all by himself. But as winter drew near, Charles grew uneasy. The six of them were living in a one-room shack, no bigger, and not as well built as the log cabin they left behind in Kentucky. Logging would force him to be away from his family for weeks at a time. Not wanting his wife to suffer like she had the last winter, Charles started looking for a better situation. Spring came in 1913 before Charles found something permanent. He got a job in Jeffersonville, Indiana, working for Mr. Wathan, a multimillionaire who owned the Wathan Distilleries and was part owner of a professional baseball team, the Louisville Colonels. 
Charles was hired as a private chauffeur because he was so good at handling horses. The job didn't pay much in cash, but it offered substantial side benefits, namely a place to live rent-free on Mr. Wathan's land. The site included a two-room log cabin, an old barn, a large garden spot, and a small field Charles could plant for his own profit. Also, Mr. Wathan had a dairy nearby, and Charles could take home a bucket of milk every night. No small benefit for a father with four growing boys. Jeffersonville was a town four miles northeast of New Albany on the river road locally called the Utica Pike. Mr. Wathan lived seven miles out of town on a large estate. The cabin Charles moved into sat on a hillside overlooking the Ohio River. Weathered boards covered the structure's outside walls, and inside mud filled the chinks between the logs. The cabin had a dirt floor, two rooms, and a sleeping loft in the rafters above one of the rooms. The ladder to the loft was made from two saplings. In the middle of the floor of one room, a sawed-off stump had been rolled and flat rocks placed on top of the stump. Above this sat a wood stove made from an empty oil drum. For cooking, Ella used a little monkey stove. They even had a coal oil lamp for light. All things considered, it was a big improvement over the one-room shanty that had sheltered them in Utica. On the hillside in front of the cabin, an apple tree spread its branches over a small spring. The cool spring water served as a refrigerator through much of the summer, keeping metal cans of milk, buttermilk, and butter from spoiling too soon. Charles couldn't keep cream there; he had too many little Branhams greedy to snitch. The spring supplied the house with water until mid-August, when it would finally grow dry. Then they would have to pump their water from the well located down by the barn and carry it up the hill to the house. Billy loved the bubbling spring. A gourd dipper hung on a nail pounded into the trunk of the apple tree, but Billy seldom used it. He liked to lie on his belly in the warm grass, put his lips to the water, and suck his stomach full. Then he would fill a jug and take it to his father in the field. Charles always came home from the field famished for supper. Because he didn't have indoor plumbing, he would wash himself behind the cabin, where a bench was built against an apple tree. The bench was just a barn board tacked to the trunk, with a board at the other side for a leg and a slanting board underneath to keep the bench sturdy. All four boys would stand in line behind Papa to wash. When Charles rolled up the sleeves of his homemade shirt to lather up, his arm muscles would swell and ripple. Billy watched with pride, thinking, "That's my Papa. He's strong. He'll live a hundred years. When I'm an old man, I'll still be watching my Papa with big muscles." Charles was only five feet seven inches tall. Billy had inherited his father's dark, wavy hair and Irish good looks. But not his powerful build. Instead, Billy was lean and wiry, like his mother. Billy's turn to wash came next. He took great care to keep the homemade lye soap out of his eyes. Once had been lesson enough. He dried with a towel his mother had made from an empty sack of cornmeal. The towel was coarse and uncomfortable, so Billy dabbed lightly. Above the wash bench, a piece from a broken mirror was held to the tree by five bent nails. Billy shinned up on the bench to see himself, so that he could use the tin comb to smooth his unruly locks. Charles had built their dinner table and benches from old barn boards. The benches looked like church pews. Billy always sat next to his father at supper. Bean soup was standard fare, along with cornbread, boiled onions, and buttermilk. 
Ella would bake the cornbread in a pan, then put it on a plate and send the plate around the table so that everyone could break off a piece as it passed. Billy always took a corner because it had lots of crust, and he liked dipping crusty cornbread in his soup. On May 14, 1914, Billy got another brother, Edgar Lee Branham. Over the next few years, Billy's life fell into a comfortable pattern. Every Saturday afternoon, his father borrowed a mule and a covered wagon from Mr. Wathan, loaded up the family, and traveled seven miles into town to buy groceries. The four youngest Branhams bounced along and back in a pile of straw, but Billy got to ride up front on the buckboard with his father and mother. Billy was always excited about going to the store because he knew exactly what would happen. Charles, who earned three dollars and fifty cents a week, often spent three dollars of this at the grocery store. Occasionally, he splurged on a sack of brown sugar or salted barrel crackers, but mostly he bought staples like beans, potatoes, and cornmeal—the kind of food that stretched a long way. After Charles paid his bill, Mr. Grover, the grocer, would give him a sack of peppermint stick candy for his youngsters. Back in the wagon, five pairs of eyes watched anxiously as Papa divided four sticks of candy equally between his five boys. Right away, the four youngest Branhams sucked their peppermint sticks to a sliver, but Billy was shrewd. He sucked on his for a while, then rolled his candy up in a piece of brown paper torn from a grocery bag and tucked it in his pocket. He had use for it later. Saturday night, they filled the large cedar wash tub with hot water and took their weekly baths. One after another, without changing the water, Ella scrubbed Billy hard with lye soap, saying, "I want to see you get as clean as a peeled onion." Then she rubbed him dry with a meal cloth towel until it felt like his hide was gone. She knew Billy was not eating a balanced diet, so every week after his bath, she made him swallow a spoonful of castor oil, which she believed would help prevent colds. Billy looked at that big spoon filled with the greasy castor oil and begged, "Oh, Mama." Please don't make me take it. It makes me so sick. I can't stand it. She answered, "If it don't make you sick, it won't do you any good." Billy held his nose, took the spoonful in his mouth, tried to swallow, gagged, shook all over, and finally managed to get it down. On Sunday, Ella cooked mulligan stew: turnips, carrots, cabbage, potatoes, beans, cornmeal, and a chunk of beef. Everything boiled together in one pot. The leftovers fed them for two or three days. Monday, Ella washed clothes outside the cabin in a big iron kettle heated over an open fire. Billy, being the eldest, had to cut locust limbs for the fire. He was also expected to fill the kettle with water—a difficult chore for a boy his age and size. William, she called. Yes, ma'am. Go to the spring and get a bucket of water. Billy thought of how that heavy cedar bucket strained his shoulder. Even when it was only half full, he felt in his pocket for that piece of peppermint candy wrapped in paper. Then he found his brother Edward and said, "Humpy." Billy often called his brother Humpy. "I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you lick on this candy until I count ten. If you'll go and get that bucket of water for me." Edward gladly fetched the water, and Billy rewarded him by holding out the peppermint stick. Billy started counting: one, two, three. Edward, licking as fast as he could go, complained, "Not so fast! You're counting too fast. Start over." Billy started over, and Edward got a few extra licks. Then Billy wrapped up the peppermint stick and put it back in his pocket. There were other chores to do on Monday. 
but as long as his candy held out, Billy was a young man of leisure. On wash day, Ella used a long, flat hickory stick to stir clothes in the boiling kettle, fishing them out when they were ready. She kept the stick hanging on a nail just inside the cabin door. That hickory paddle served many functions. Ella mashed lumps out of the straw-tick mattresses with it, then smoothed out the bedding quilts. Charles also used it as a rod of correction. Sometimes, if one of the boys had been bad and was expecting a spanking, the hickory stick would mysteriously disappear. Charles always managed to get by without it, using instead his razor strap made out of an old belt, or else the ramrod from his rifle. All the little Branhams got an education out in the woodshed, running around their father as hard as they could go while he whipped their bottoms red. Charles called this beating the devil out of them. On one occasion, Edward hatched a mischievous plan. Billy, he said, "Mama and Papa are hoeing in the garden. If you go in and get some sugar, I'll get the crackers and I'll meet you in the barn." It sounded fair enough to Billy. Ella kept the brown sugar in a box in the cabin. She often mixed it with water to make molasses for their breakfast pancakes. Billy slipped into the cabin, dug out a big handful of sugar, and started for the barn. The garden was halfway down the hill between the house and the barn. Charles straightened up from his hoe, wiping his forehead with his red and white checkered handkerchief. He noticed his oldest son walking with his far arm as stiff as if he were hiding something. Charles said, "Where are you going, William?" "I'm going down to the barn." "What have you got in your hand?" Billy thought. "Uh-oh." He tried to be evasive. "Which hand?" Charles said, "Come here." Billy didn't want any more sugar for a long time after that. Late in August of 1916, after a steam-powered threshing machine had finished processing the grain crops, Ella stuffed new straw into all her tick mattresses. That night, shortly after the boys were sent to bed in the loft, Billy screamed as if a banshee had touched his cheek. Ella dashed to the ladder and called, "Billy, what on earth's wrong with you?" "Mama, there's something in bed with me." It's just a grasshopper trapped in the new straw. Now settle down and go to sleep, Mama. I can't go to sleep with that critter jumping around in there. Ella took the coal oil lamp in hand and climbed up to the loft so Billy could see to open the side of his tick, dig around in the fresh straw, and find the offending grasshopper. He let it go outside by pushing it through a crack where the roof did not butt evenly with the wall. Later, Ella chuckled about the incident when she told it to Charles, but she could not tell her husband about her deep concern for Billy. The boy had been edgy lately, and his food wasn't setting right. More than once in the past month, he had complained of an upset stomach after supper and of burping up stomach acid. Was he nervous because he would soon start school, or was something else bothering him? Could it be connected with his father's drinking? In September, Billy and Edward started school together. Billy was seven and a half years old. Although he was eleven months older than his brother Edward, in size they could have passed for twins. Edward was just a smidgen shorter. Billy had no clothes for school. Through the summer, he had gone barefoot and without a shirt, wearing a pair of patched and tattered bib overalls. The family could not afford new clothes, so Ella improvised. She took the coat Charles had worn in their wedding day, cut it up, and sewed together a pair of pants. Charles came home with white socks and a used pair of tennis shoes that barely fit, and that completed Billy's wardrobe. When Ella finished dressing him for his newest adventure, she said, 
There, now let's have a look at you. She stood back for perspective. His bare ribs made him look so small and skinny. He looked so backward with his shaggy hair hanging down his neck, his homemade trousers, and his second-hand tennis shoes. Ella smiled and said, "If you don't look like a windy Kentuckian," she had done the best she could with what she had. Unfortunately, her oldest son would have to go to school without a shirt. So, on a chilly morning in September of 1916, Billy and Edward trudged down the river road to Utica Pike School, which was a typical rural one-room schoolhouse set among the hills in view of the Ohio River. Mrs. Temple would be his teacher for many years. She taught all eight grades, with students ranging in age from six to fifteen. In school, Billy learned more than the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Suddenly, his view of the world expanded. As he sat in class, he had time to compare himself with the other children. The differences shouted at him. These were country boys and girls like himself, but most of them wore nice clothes and shoes that fit, and they all wore shirts. For lunch, the other children ate sandwiches and had cookies or cake for dessert. Billy ate beans, and some days he had no lunch at all. He began to realize his family was poor. From the first, Billy was branded as an outsider by the older boys. They called him a corn cracker and teased him because he talked funny, with a hillbilly accent typical of the Kentucky mountain folks. And they laughed at him for looking so ragged. A few weeks after school started, Billy and some other boys his own age decided to spend an afternoon fishing at the ice pond behind the Branhams' cabin. They called it the ice pond because Mr. Wathan cut blocks of ice from it every winter. Stored the blocks in sawdust, then used them during the summer to keep ice boxes cold in his dairy. Billy was thrilled that these boys included him in their plans. Not only did he love to fish, but he longed to be part of the gang. After school, Billy ran home, eager to get his homemade fishing pole down from the loft. His tennis shoes did not fit well and had caused a painful corn to form on his big toe. That day in school, he had been preoccupied with the corn. Each time he moved his foot, the corn tortured him so much he could not keep his mind on his schoolwork. Now, in his excitement and haste, he easily ignored the pain. He dashed into the cabin and had just placed a foot on the sapling ladder when a powerful hand gripped his shoulder. His father turned him around. "Billy, I've got an important job for you to do this afternoon. I want you to pack water up to the stills for me." Billy's heart and limbs petrified. But Papa, I was going to go fishing with my buddies this afternoon. You can go fishing tomorrow. I'm fixing to run off a batch of corn whiskey tonight, and I'm behind. I've got to have enough water in the shed to keep those coils cool. You're old enough to work, and I've got to have your help. The buckets are down by the barn, sitting next to the pump. Now get on up and change your clothes. I'll be out back in the shed getting the stills ready. Slowly, Billy started up the ladder. Turning his head so his father would not see his tears, and remember, Charles added, "Keep mum, not a word about this to anyone." Yes, Papa. Although national prohibition would not be voted in until 1919, certain states had anti-liquor laws in place as early as 1906. In 1916, Indiana was already a dry state. Charles could not do without his whiskey. Since he did not have enough money to buy it on the black market, he and a neighbor, Mr. Dornbush, fabricated a moonshine still in the shed behind the house to cook up their own homemade brew. 
After selling their leftovers to thirsty neighbors and pocketing a little extra money, they had decided to build a second still. Tonight they were going to fire up both stills, and everything had to be ready. Billy sat in his straw-tick mattress for a long time, feeling the corn on his foot throb with each beat of his heart. Eventually, he roused the strength to change. With great relief, he yanked off his shoes. Slipping out of his school pants, he wiggled into his old bib overalls. The cloth shoulder straps were missing, and now the overalls were held up by twine with nails for buttons. The nails slipped easily through the buttonholes in the bib, and when turned sideways, did not come out. Next, he stumped his toe, which meant he took a corn cob and tied it under his painful toe to keep it out of the dirt. Slowly, he climbed down the ladder and plodded down the hill to the well by the barn. Two molasses buckets were sitting next to the pump shaft. Billy pumped them full. Each bucket held half a gallon of water, and it was all his seven-year-old muscles could do to lift them by their makeshift twine handles. That afternoon was warm and perfectly calm. Not a breath of air stirred the dry yellow grass. As Billy started up the path, he heard laughter coming from the ice pond not far away. His buddies were already there, fishing, joking, having a good time. Billy's disappointment broke loose in a flood of tears. Halfway up the hill, next to the garden, Billy sat down to rest under the shade of a large silver poplar tree. Muddy streaks marked his cheeks where the tears had dribbled. He moaned, "Isn't it horrible? All those boys out there fishing, and I have to stay home and pack water." He heard a sound like leaves rustling in the wind. Whoosh! But Billy couldn't feel a breeze. He thought, "What's that?" And he looked around. The leaves, which had just started to turn brown, stood perfectly still. Nowhere could he see even a hint of wind. He continued his sulking. Their papas don't do this. Why should I have to pack water to these moonshine stills? He could hear the leaves blowing again. Standing up, he looked up into the branches above him, but he couldn't see anything moving. He squalled out a few more complaints, then picked up his buckets and started up the lane. His stump toe leaving a peculiar track behind him on the dirt path. He had walked only a short way when he heard that noise again, whoosh, louder than before. Billy turned, and this time he saw it. A whirlwind stirred in the branches halfway up the tree. That in itself was not peculiar. Whirlwinds were common in the fall. He had often seen them spinning through fields, picking up dried leaves and carrying them along. But those whirlwinds were always traveling somewhere, always moving across the ground. This whirlwind seemed to be caught in one place. Fascinated, Billy watched the green, brown, and yellow leaves rustle and swirl. Suddenly, a voice boomed from the tree—a deep, resonant voice saying, "Don't ever drink or smoke or defile your body in any way. There will be a work for you to do when you get older." Billy heard the words as clearly as if his father was talking, but it was not his father's voice. He had never heard such an awesome voice before. Dropping his buckets, he took off running for the cabin, screaming with all his lungs. Ella scooped him up in her arms. "Billy, what is it? Did you get snake bit?" She thought that perhaps walking past the garden, her son had stepped on a copperhead, a poisonous snake common in that country. "No, ma'am," he babbled, pointing down the hill towards the garden. "There's a man in that tree down there." "Oh, Billy." 
Billy, come on. Did you stop and go to sleep? No, ma'am. There's a man in that tree, and he told me not to drink or smoke. Ella laughed at this. She hugged her son and kissed his forehead, trying to soothe his nerves. But Billy stayed hysterical and would not calm down. She put him to bed, then hurried to the nearest neighbor who had a telephone and called the doctor. After hearing the story, this doctor said, "The boy's just nervous. He'll get over it." That night, Billy repeated his story at supper. There's a man in that tree, and I heard what he told me. I ain't never going by there again, and he never did. From that day on, whenever he went to the barn, he would bypass the poplar tree, circling round the far side of the garden. Two weeks later, Billy and Edward were up in front of the cabin playing marbles under the apple tree when suddenly Billy felt something peculiar come over him—a pressure that set his skin tingling as though some type of unseen energy had surrounded him. He looked up. Somehow, the Ohio River seemed closer than it had before. As Billy gazed down the river towards Jeffersonville, the wilderness changed in front of his eyes. A bridge formed up off the bank, spanning the river, piece by piece, being built in fast motion. It was not like the low, flat bridges he had crossed when he had moved to Indiana. This bridge looked huge, with a vast iron trust arch overhead. Billy had never seen anything like it before. Looking closer, he noticed men working high up on the superstructure. Then he saw a span break. Men tumbled off the beam in slow motion. Billy counted them as they fell. He watched sixteen men disappear into the murky water below. Dropping his bag of marbles, Billy took off for the house, screaming uncontrollably. Ella did her best to calm him down. When he finally could tell his story, she said, "Billy, you just dreamed it." Billy insisted. No, Mama. I got this funny feeling, and then I looked up at the river, and I looked right at it. I seen it. Oh, Mama, I'm scared. Charles gave his opinion. The boy's just nervous, like the doctor said. But Ella was not so sure. She remembered a day four years earlier when Billy had babbled something about a bird telling him they would live near New Albany. Oddly enough, that had come true. A bridge across the river. Sixteen men dying. What if some day it happened? Ella wrote the incident down, thinking, "We'll see." Chapter three: The Stink of Poverty, covering the years 1916 to 1917. School expanded Billy's perception in many ways. He learned of a world beyond the green hills of Indiana and Kentucky, a world at war. He heard names of countries he had never known existed: Germany, Austria, Hungary, and he learned how these countries had formed an alliance against France, Great Britain, and Russia. Although in the fall of 1916 the United States of America still remained neutral, Mrs. Temple kept her students informed on foreign affairs. She would often bring a newspaper to school to read the children articles about the war. Billy's imagination stirred with accounts of foot soldiers and commanding generals, fierce battles, and romantic heroes. Sometimes he would spend half his lunch hour studying pictures of soldiers that were printed in the newspaper. Occasionally, he would even see soldiers in downtown Jeffersonville. Their neat military uniforms fired Billy's seven-year-old imagination, making him long to be a soldier too. Lloyd Ford, a school chum of Billy's, had earned a scout uniform by selling the Pathfinder magazine during the summer months. 
Lloyd often wore it to school, much to Billy's envy. With its insignia patch on the front, its ranking stripes on the sleeve, its military-style hat, and its single stripe down the outside of each pant leg, Lloyd Ford's scout uniform looked like everything Billy wanted in a suit of clothes. If he could ever wear such a uniform, he knew he would feel so important. One day, Billy got up enough nerve to ask Lloyd, "When you wear that uniform out, will you give it to me?" Lloyd said, "Sure, Billy, I'll give it to you." Toward the end of October, the weather turned cold. Frost carpeted the fields each morning and rarely melted off before ten o'clock. Billy, still with no shirt, shivered as he ran along the Utica Pike. If he got to school early enough, he could warm his goose bumps by the cast-iron coal stove before classes began, and he had to take his assigned seat. Mrs. Wathan, the wife of Charles Boss, must have seen him running to school with a bare chest because early one day she gave him a used coat with an eagle patch on the arm. Loving the luxury of so much warmth, Billy wore that coat every minute he worked. Or played outside his cabin. In school, he would keep his coat pinned up to the collar so that none of the other children would see he didn't have a shirt on underneath. Sleeping in the loft at night, Billy and his younger brothers could see stars peeking through the clapboard shingles. When it started to snow, Ella covered her boys with a canvas tarp to keep them dry while they slept. In the morning, that tarp was dusted with snow. Ella had breakfast ready before the boys woke up. Hot biscuits and sorghum molasses. One morning she went to the sapling ladder and called, "Billy, you and Edward come down for breakfast." Billy answered, "Mama, I can't see. My eyes have got something in them." The chilly breeze circulating through the loft all night had caused his eyelids to stick shut. Ella said, "You got matter in your eyes. Just a minute, I'll fetch the coon grease." Whenever Charles shot a raccoon. He would cut the fat off the meat, and Ella would boil it down into lard, storing it in a can. Coon grease was the family cure-all. Ella would give it to her children for a bad cold with turpentine on it and coal oil. They would swallow it for a sore throat. Now Ella massaged warm coon grease into the boys' eyelids until they could open their eyes. Billy and Edward walked to school in the snow, sometimes following a wagon track, sometimes busting through drifts. They arrived at school soaking wet up to their knees. Fortunately, their wet shoes and pants dried out by lunchtime. They always carried their lunch together in a half-gallon molasses bucket. Inside the bucket, their mother packed a little jar full of greens, another full of beans, two pieces of cornbread left over from breakfast, and two spoons. Billy could smell the oven-baked bread in the other children's lunches. It smelled so good. He knew now that those children ate sandwiches and cookies for lunch, and he was ashamed to let them see his lowly beans and cornbread. So he and Edward walked down by the river, sat on a log, and set the jars between them to eat their lunch in private. Billy scooped a spoonful of beans first, then Edward poked in his spoon, then Billy again, taking turns, careful that both jars emptied evenly between them. Near Christmas of 1916, Mrs. Temple had her students cut stripes of red, white, and blue paper and paste them into chains to take home and hang around their Christmas trees. Charles had never had a Christmas tree in the cabin before, but when Ella saw her son's decorations, she was determined that this year would be different. Taking an axe into the woods, Ella brought home a bushy little cedar. She draped the two paper chains over the boughs, but the tree still looked too bare. 
Charles had grown some popcorn in the garden that summer, and Ella thought this an ideal time to use it. She popped it in a covered kettle shaken over an open fire. With needle and thread, she strung the popcorn into a long chain, then wrapped the chain around the cedar several times until she was satisfied it looked like a proper Christmas tree. After decorating the tree, Ella had some popcorn left over, so she put it in a half-gallon molasses bucket and sent it to school with Billy and Edward for a lunchtime treat. The two boys set their lunch bucket in the cloakroom on a shelf above where the other children hung their coats. Billy still wore his coat all day, even in the classroom. About ten o'clock in the morning, Billy's mind wandered to that popcorn. How would it taste? He thought. I wonder if I could try a handful before lunch. So he raised his hand and asked Mrs. Temple if he could be excused to use the outhouse. She said yes. As Billy passed through the cloakroom, he took the lid off the bucket, scooped out a big handful of popcorn, and put the lid back in place. He went outside behind the brick chimney and ate that popcorn piece by scrumptious piece. Carefully, he wiped his hands and face before going back inside, so there would be no evidence to give away his cheating. At lunchtime, Billy and Edward went down by the river to eat on their log. They both wanted to munch the popcorn first. When they opened up the bucket, they could see that a third of the popcorn was gone. Edward looked up at Billy with innocent astonishment and said, "Say, something has happened to that popcorn." Billy tried to look as astonished as his brother. Yeah, it sure has. Edward never suspected the truth. The boys hung up their stockings on Christmas Eve. The next morning, each found an orange and three pieces of candy in his sock. Billy thought, "Oh, what a great fellow Santa Claus is to come and bring me that." He ate his orange Christmas Day, but the peelings he dried and carried with him in his coat pocket for weeks, sucking them like candy. Sometime in January of 1917, Billy noticed that Lloyd Ford had not worn his scout uniform to school since the Christmas break. He asked, "Lloyd, what about that scout suit?" Lloyd said, "I'm sorry, Billy. I forgot that you wanted it. I'll ask my mother." The next day, Lloyd brought disappointing news. Mother took the coat and made a dog pallet out of it. Billy, she used the trousers to patch Dad's pants. I haven't got a thing left but one legging. Undaunted, Billy said, "Then bring me that legging." Now Billy was the proud owner of one legging from a worn-out scout uniform, with a stripe down one side and a drawstring on one end. He wanted so much to wear that legging to school, but he could not think of a way to do it. So he slipped the legging into his coat pocket, where it would be ready when a good excuse came along. He did not have long to wait. A huge winter storm dumped its white fury all over the Indiana countryside. Some drifts measured seventeen feet deep. Next, it sleeted, leaving a glaze of ice on top of trees and snow, making perfect sledding conditions. The students at Utica Pike School now spent their lunch recesses sledding down a large hill close by. All the children had store-bought sleds. All that is, except Billy and Edward. Billy remembered an old metal dishpan in a dump down by the river. He fetched it, and soon he and Edward joined the rest of the children at the top of the hill. They climbed in the dishpan, Billy in back, wrapping his legs around Edward in the front, and down the hill they scooted, spinning around as they slid. It was great fun. 
but eventually the rusty bottom wore out of the pan and they had to find something else to use as a sled. This time they transformed a log, chopping on it until the front vaguely resembled a sled runner. The snow conditions were just icy enough so that it worked. The two boys rode their makeshift sled to great speeds on the steepest slope of the hill. On one particular sled run, the boys took a nasty spill at the bottom of the hill. Billy got up with snow crammed down his coat and a dull ache in his leg. Other children gathered around asking if he was all right. Oh, I hurt my leg, he groaned. Then suddenly he got an idea. That reminds me. I've got one of the leggings from my scout uniform in my pocket. That will make a good bandage. Taking the legging from his pocket, he pulled it over his tennis shoe and up around his aching leg, securing it in place with the drawstring. Just then the school bell rang, calling them back to class. That afternoon Mrs. Temple asked Billy to come to the blackboard. He stood sideways working his problem, hoping the other students couldn't tell he had a uniform on just one leg. But of course everyone noticed. Suppressed giggles soon turned into uproarious laughter. Billy started crying, and Mrs. Temple made him go home early. In April, Mrs. Temple brought a Louisville newspaper to school with a headline that screamed, United States declares war on Germany. She read the article out loud explaining how on March 18, 1917, German submarines sank three U.S. merchant ships, forcing President Woodrow Wilson to end America's neutrality. The United States of America had entered the war. Outside the schoolhouse, oak trees were budding. The days grew increasingly warmer. In the afternoon, Billy sat sweltering in his heavy winter coat. His toes now stuck up through the holes in the ends of his tennis shoes. One day, Mrs. Temple noticed the students sitting in the back of the classroom making funny faces and holding their noses as if something stunk. She wondered if it had something to do with young William Branham. Why did that boy insist on wearing his coat on such a hot afternoon? She said, William, why don't you take that coat off? Aren't you warm? Billy's heart seemed to stop. He couldn't take off his coat. He didn't have on any shirt. No, ma'am. I'm just a little bit chilly. She was surprised. You're chilly on a day like this? Yes, ma'am. She said you better come over here and sit by the fire. Billy had kept his secret all winter long, and he wasn't about to let it out now. Reluctantly, he moved his seat next to the pot-bellied stove while Mrs. Temple threw in another shovel full of coal. Perspiration beaded his forehead, then trickled down his face. Mrs. Temple asked, William, are you still chilly? Yes, ma'am. She shook her head. You must be sick. You'd better go home. Billy stayed home for several days, wondering how he could get a shirt so he could go back to school. His aunt, his father's sister, lived across the hill from their cabin. She had a daughter about Billy's age. They had recently been over to visit, and his young cousin had left behind a dress. Even though it had decorative rickrack across the front and back, Billy decided he could get a shirt out of that dress. He cut most of the skirt part off and stuffed the rest down his trousers. Then he checked himself in the broken mirror nailed to the apple tree out back. He shook his head and crossed his fingers. When the school children saw the rickrack across his chest, they teased, That's a girl's dress. No, it's not, Billy insisted. This is my Indian suit. They laughed even harder at such a notion and teased him mercilessly. 
Billy Branham is wearing a girl's dress. What a sissy! In spite of their ridicule, Billy wore that shirt every day until school let out for summer. He had to. It was the only shirt he owned. Chapter Four: Beaten Without Mercy, covering the years 1922 to 1923. On May 5th, 1923, Ella Branham bore her eighth son, naming him Howard Duffy. He joined Charles Jr., age four, Jesse seven, Edgar nine, Melvin eleven, Henry twelve, Edward thirteen, and William, who was now fourteen years old. Charles Branham was finding it increasingly difficult to feed his eight children, especially during the colder months. By the winter of 1922-1923, Billy was running a trapline to help put food on the table. The wooded parts of Mr. Wathan's land teemed with muskrats, opossums, rabbits, beavers, and skunks. At two o'clock every morning, Billy went out with his lantern to inspect his traps, often getting back to the house just in time to go to school. Because he only owned one pair of clothes, many times he sat in class smelling like the skunk he had skinned earlier that morning, much to the disgust of the other students. But his extra effort paid off for his family. When he trapped a rabbit, he could sell it for fifteen cents. Then he could buy a box of twenty-two shells and shoot three or four more rabbits. His mother would serve a rabbit for supper along with biscuits and gravy. The rest Billy would sell in town, using the money to buy cornmeal or wheat flour. The trip into town often depressed Billy. The Branhams had a bad reputation around Jeffersonville, and more than once people had crossed to the other side of the street to avoid Billy. Some people would talk to him as long as nobody could see them doing it, but if anyone else came around, the person talking to Billy would quit and walk away. That hurt. Billy knew his father and his uncles were a rough bunch. Smoking, chewing tobacco, gambling, drinking, and bootlegging. But Billy thought bitterly, "What have I done? I'm not guilty of that. I've never drank in my life. Why do I have to be lumped in with that?" Not that Billy hadn't tried to drink. One Sunday morning in the spring, he and Edward were walking down to the river with their father and Mr. Dornbush, the neighbor who had done the welding on Charles Stills. The two boys were planning to take their old leaky rowboat up and down the river to search for discarded glass bottles. Charles always needed bottles for his homemade brew, and he paid well for them—a nickel a dozen. Mr. Dornbush had shown a liking for Billy, and now Billy was trying to impress the man, hoping that Mr. Dornbush would lend him his watertight rowboat for the morning. Billy's boat didn't have a rudder, making it difficult to handle in stiff current. For oars, Billy had to use two old boards. He would paddle awkwardly on one side of the boat while Edward paddled on the other. Near the river, a tree had blown across the path. Charles threw his leg over the tree, but instead of climbing over, he leaned back on a branch and said, "Let's stop here for a little refreshment." Pulling a small flat bottle of whiskey from his back pocket, he tipped it above his lips, then handed it to his friend. Mr. Dornbush took a drink and handed it back to Charles, who nestled it in the branches of a sucker near the upturned roots. To Billy, this looked like as good a time as any to ask for a favor. Mr. Dornbush, do you think my brother and I could borrow your boat for the morning? Sure, Billy, that would be fine. Quivering with excitement, Billy thought, "Here's one guy who likes me."
Charles took another swig of whiskey and passed it back to his friend. When Mr. Dornbush had quenched his thirst, he handed the bottle to Billy, saying, "Here you are, Billy. Have a drink." Billy said, "No thanks. I don't drink." Mr. Dornbush looked startled. "You mean to tell me you're an Irishman and a Branham and you don't drink?" Charles nodded with a look of disgust on his face, saying, "I'm raising a bunch of boys, but only one of them is a sissy, and that's Bill." Billy flared, "Me a sissy?" He recoiled at the very idea. "I'm sick and tired of being called a sissy. Hand me that bottle." Mr. Dornbush extended the flask. Billy jerked it from the man's hand, pulled out the stopper, and pressed it to his lips with angry determination. He started to tip it up, but before a single drop of whiskey dribbled into his mouth, he heard a noise like leaves being stirred by a whirlwind. Whoosh! His hand stayed. The bottle poised at his lips. Whoosh! It wasn't his imagination. He heard it as clearly as he heard the conversation around him. Whoosh! Billy's memory flashed back to that voice in the poplar tree, commanding. Don't ever drink or smoke or defile your body in any way. There will be a work for you to do when you get older. Terrified, Billy dropped the bottle and took off through the field as hard as he could go, crying bitter tears of frustration and confusion. Charles sneered. See what I told you? That one is a sissy. Any direction Billy turned, life showed its jagged teeth. He continued his schoolhouse education through the seventh grade. It was like hiking uphill on crutches. The rural school system required students to buy their own books and supplies. Billy's parents didn't have enough money for pencils and paper, let alone school primers. So every time Billy needed to study his lessons, he had to borrow a book from another student. The school curriculum of the time was designed to help mold a child's moral character as well as his intellect. One lesson that deeply touched Billy was the study of Longfellow's poem "Psalm of Life." Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream, for the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end or way, but to act that each tomorrow finds us further than today. Art is long and time is fleeting, and our hearts, though stout and brave, still like muffled drums are beating funeral marches to the grave. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb-driven cattle. Be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, however pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present. Heart within and God overhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime, and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another sailing over life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing. Shall take heart again. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing. Learn to labor and to wait. This poem inspired Billy. Yet not in his wildest dreams could he have imagined the deep footprints his own life would leave on the sands of time. 
For now, Longfellow's poem sang a song of hope in a dreary land. These lofty words spoke to Billy's heart, encouraging this disheveled fourteen-year-old boy struggling to understand all the injustices he saw in his own life. The older boys taunted and badgered him at every opportunity, for being born in Kentucky, for being poor, for being small for his age, and for being different. By now, Billy understood the reason for his family's poverty, his father's drinking problem. One day, when the school children were making fun of him because he dressed so raggedly, Billy read an episode in a history book about Abraham Lincoln getting off a boat in New Orleans and passing a slave auction. According to this account, Abraham Lincoln saw white men bidding on a big, strong colored man, while the slave's wife and children stood at the side weeping. Lincoln slapped his hands together and said, "That's wrong, and some day I'll hit that thing, even if it takes my life." Billy pushed the history book back and thought, "Drinking is wrong too, and some day I'll hit it, even if it takes my life." But nothing flared his imagination more than when he read about the Arizona desert in his geography primer. He longed to be there, longed to ride the open range studded with cactus. It sounded so romantic, so peaceful, so idyllic. The poet within him stirred, but he had nothing on which to write his thoughts. So he borrowed a piece of paper from the student next to him and wrote, "I am lonesome, oh so lonesome, for that faraway southwest, where the shadows fall the deepest over the mountain crest. I can see a lurking coyote all around the purple haze. I can hear a lobo hollering." Down where the longhorns graze, and somewhere up a canyon, I can hear a lion whine in those far-off Catalina Mountains at the Arizona line. Unfortunately, the harassment from older boys went further than mocking and jeering. After school, they would gang up on him repeatedly. Although small for his age, Billy had grit and enough temper to fight a buzz saw. The boys would knock him down, and he would get up again. They would keep knocking him down until he didn't have the strength to get back up. Many times he sucked his supper through a straw, his mouth too badly mashed for him to eat solid food. One spring day in 1923, Billy walked a girl home from school carrying her books. On the way back to his cabin, five bullies surrounded him. They shoved him into the dirt. One sneered, "Why are you walking with that girl?" Another taunted. Yeah, we don't want you walking with her, you dirty Kentucky squab. They knew Billy was born in Kentucky and that his mother was half Indian, making her a squaw. So they derided him by calling him a Kentucky squab. At that insult, Billy jumped to his feet and charged, his fists swinging wildly. But five were too many. The bullies wrestled with him until they had his arms pinned. Then, while four boys held him helpless. One boy took a rock in his fist and pounded Billy in the face until he sagged almost senseless. Billy pleaded with them, "If you'll just let me go, I'll go right straight home. I promise." Since he was nearly unconscious anyway, the boys agreed. But first they threw him down, scraped his face in the hard dirt road, then kicked him a few times for a finishing touch of meanness before they left. Billy did go straight home, but not to stay. He took down the twenty-two Winchester rifle that hung above the cabin door, filled it with sixteen bullets, 
Then he took a shortcut through a locust thicket to a point on the road where he knew those boys would pass. He hid beside the road and waited. Soon he heard voices. That'll teach that corn cracker to walk with a girl, one said. Another chimed, Did you see how scared he looked? Another added, Yeah, that Kentucky squab will realize where he's at from this on. Stepping out from behind the bushes, Billy barred their path with his rifle leveled and its hammer cocked. He said calmly, Which one of you wants to die first? So you won't have to watch the others die. The five boys turned pale and squealed in terror and disbelief. Billy said, Don't whine, cause you're all going to die, one by one. He pointed his gun barrel at the boy who had smashed him repeatedly with a rock, beginning with you. He pulled the trigger. Click. The bullet didn't fire. Quickly, Billy jerked back the bolt, forcing another shell into the chamber. Click. It misfired, too. By this time, the five boys were running, screaming, diving over ditches and around trees, trying to get out of there as fast as they could. Billy, with every intention of killing them, kept pumping shells into the chamber and pulling the trigger as fast as he could work the action. Click. Click, 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 but every shell misfired. The five boys were long gone. Scattered around the ground beside Billy lay sixteen bullets. He picked them up, blew the dirt off them, and put them back in the gun. Then he aimed his rifle at a tree and started pulling the trigger. Crack, 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 crack. This time every shell fired, slamming into the trunk, sending the bark flying in every direction. Billy stood in the middle of the road, seething with anger. Then suddenly he started to laugh, a hard, idiotic laugh that boiled out from the depth of his frustration. He laughed so hard that tears ran down his swollen cheeks. That year, when school let out for the summer, Billy walked away and never went back. Chapter Five: Accidentally Shot, covering the years 1923 to 1924. William Branham spent his 14th summer, 1923, helping his father tend the garden and work the field. Charles had two horses on the place: one old plow horse that he owned, and one younger horse borrowed from Mr. Wathan. Since he had two single-sweep moldboard plows, Charles always ran both plows at the same time. In June, Billy and his father were plowing between rows of corn when the horses started snorting and stomping their feet nervously. Billy struggled to keep his horse between the rows so that the moldboard plow would not wander into the corn stalks. He hollered, "Papa, what's the matter with this horse?" Charles' horse was dancing too. He stopped, mopped his brow with his red and white checkered handkerchief, and studied the horizon. "Son, there's coming a storm." Billy peered at the clear blue skyline. Storm? I don't see no storm, Papa. Son, you don't understand. God is giving these horses an instinct. They can smell that storm way away. They began plowing again, but didn't get further than two more rows when dark clouds topped the horizon. They just had time to get the horses back to the barn before the squall let loose. Billy rarely thought about God. For the subject seldom came up in household conversation, but he thought about him that day, and he wondered what other shrewd instincts God might have put into animals. 
Thinking about all the marvelous things he had seen among the creatures of the woods, Billy decided that God must be a pretty clever fellow. One Saturday morning, Billy asked if he could go into town for the day. Charles paid him a dime for helping him all week, saying, "Don't spend it all in one place, son." Hitchhiking into Jeffersonville, Billy went to the house of his cousin Jimmy Poole. Then he, Jimmy, and Ernest Fisher strolled downtown to spend their money. Billy fingered the dime in his pocket as he walked. He felt so rich. First, he bought an ice cream cone for a penny. After he had eaten that one, he bought and ate two more. Then he went into Shimp's candy store and ogled at the row upon rows of glass jars filled with hard candies. Billy had been here before, and he knew what he liked best. He paid two cents for half of a pound of Red Hots. That left him a nickel, just enough for the double feature at Leo's Theater. After watching Western movies for hours, Billy had fantasies about living out west and being a hero on a dude ranch. The height of his youthful ambition was to be a real cowboy with chaps and boots and a ten-gallon hat and an ornery horse that nobody else could ride but him. He often heard his father talk about how, when he was younger, he had broken wild broncos and entered rodeos from Kentucky to Texas. Billy thought, "Oh my!" When I get just a little older, I'm going to go out west and be a real rider. Billy practiced on the old plow horse. When he and his father spent a day in the field, Billy always came home early to do the chores. He led his tired nag behind the barn to a water trough made from a hollowed-out log. The horse plunged his muzzle through the slime, sucking in drafts of water, while Billy undid the harness and carried it into the barn. Bees hummed above the water trough. Billy's younger brothers gathered around. They had taken the hairs that combed out of the horse's mane and tail and had braided these into a horsehair snake, which they floated in the trough. When the horse's drinking made waves, the horsehair snake rippled like a slithering copperhead on top of the water. Billy lugged a saddle from the barn and slapped it on the horse's back. Cockleburs grew thick around the water trough. And Billy gathered a handful of the prickly heads and stuffed them under the saddle before he cinched it tight. His brothers lined up on the fence for the show. Jumping on the horse's back, Billy jabbed his heels into its flanks, trying to get it to buck. The poor old horse, tired from working all day, just bawled and turned around, scarcely lifting its hoofs off the ground. Billy rocked back and forth in the saddle, pretending his horse was a fierce bucking bronco. He hollered, "Look at me! I'm a cowboy!" as he slapped the horse on the rump with his straw hat. All his brothers laughed and clapped their hands. That fall, after the crops were harvested, Billy spent more and more time in the woods, fishing and hunting with his coon dog Fritz. Billy loved his dog and boasted Fritz could tree any critter that climbed. Not even a skunk could discourage his dog's faithfulness. Fritz would chase a skunk into a pile of brush, then circle the pile, barking to keep the skunk put. When Billy caught up, all he had to do was raise the pile of brush and say, "Sick him, boy!" Without any hesitation, Fritz would plunge in and nab the skunk, ignoring the awful smell that sprayed at him. Naturally, Billy's mother disapproved of this practice. Hunting and fishing became more of a pastime for Billy. His hours in the woods became a refuge from the outside world. 
an interlude of peace in a life otherwise squeezed too tightly by unbearable circumstances. In the forest, Billy no longer felt like an outcast. He felt like he was part of the wildlife, part of the rhythm of the seasons, part of the natural order of the universe. He felt like he belonged. Billy began to wander farther from home and in doing so discovered Tunnel Mill, a rural area about 15 miles northeast of Jeffersonville near Charlestown, Indiana. The area drew its name from a remarkable flour mill that sat next to 14 Mile Creek. In the early 1800s, a man named John Work was looking for a good location to build a mill. It was not easy to find the perfect spot. The water wheel needed to run with enough speed and volume to turn the mill's giant water wheel as many months of the year as possible. John Work noticed that at one point, 14 Mile Creek wrapped almost completely around a big hill of rock, dropping 24 feet in the process. Shrewdly, he calculated that if he built his mill on the downstream side of the hill and dynamited a tunnel directly through the rock bluff to the upstream side, the steep drop through the tunnel would be all the power his water wheel would ever need. The mill and tunnel were completed in 1820 and gained for the area the appropriate name of Tunnel Mill. Thirty years later, John Work's son sold the flour mill to Wilford Green, whose family had operated it ever since. That's why sometimes the area was also called Green's Mill by the local residents. Isolated from civilization, the Tunnel Mill area teemed with fish, deer, opossums, skunks, raccoons, muskrats, beavers, squirrels, trees, hills, rocks, streams, quiet and serenity, in short, everything that Billy wanted in his life. He went there often, catching rides on the delivery trucks that shuttled between Charlestown and Jeffersonville. Sometimes he could convince his two buddies, Jimmy Poole and Sam Adair, to go there with him. Sometimes he would take Edward and Henry. Usually they would sleep in an abandoned rager cabin, and they would always catch their breakfast right from the stream. At one place, 14 Mile Creek ran 10 feet deep and 40 feet wide, forming a perfect swimming hole. Billy dubbed this spot the Beaver Hole. He packed in a long coil of rope and tied it to a tree limb that stretched out over the water. From the bank, they would swing a wide arc out over the stream. Then they would let go. That rope gave the boys countless hours of fun. When he couldn't get someone to go with him, Billy hitchhiked up to Tunnel Mill by himself. He would spend days hunting and fishing and exploring the rugged woodlands. During one of these ramblings, he accidentally discovered his future hideaway. Coming around the side of a hill, he found himself at the base of a limestone cliff. Below him, the land sloped sharply down into a ravine about 80 feet deep. The whole area was heavily wooded and strewn with big limestone boulders that had fallen from the cliffs above. Billy was picking his way carefully along the base of the cliff when he noticed a two-foot-wide hole at his feet, almost completely hidden by the dense underbrush. At first, he assumed it must be a fox den, a crack between the rocks that sheltered animals from the weather. But a closer inspection showed him it was the mouth of a cave. Billy wiggled into the opening feet first. The hole went down about three feet and from there the floor sloped downward and back into the hill until it formed a narrow passageway that was tall enough to allow him to stand. The air was cool and moist. Billy groped his way along the corridor for a short distance until he got scared. What if he should stumble into a pit? He dared not go too far into the darkness now. He would come back later, better prepared.
The next time Billy was in the area, he brought with him some candles so that he could explore farther back into his cave. He wiggled through the opening and skidded down the slippery incline to the first place where he could stand up. The corridor was only about 18 inches wide. Although the walls were roughly perpendicular, the shadows caused by his flickering candlelight accentuated the many angles of the limestone interior. The passageway jogged slightly to the right and widened out a bit. Here the floor and ceiling were both reasonably level, as if this part of the cave was made for human habitation. There was even a flat ledge jutting out from one wall that was the right size for a bed. After another twelve feet the corridor narrowed again. The floor and ceiling became uneven. The ceiling was crammed with angular chunks of limestone, tightly wedged, but giving the illusion that they might fall at any moment. By now he had come about twenty-five feet from the entrance. Suddenly he stopped and whistled in amazement. In front of him the cave widened out into a small room. In the center of the chamber sat a table formed from a single massive chunk of limestone. The table was a rectangular block about three feet high, three feet wide, and four feet long. The top of the table looked remarkably flat and level, and the four edges looked perfectly square. But the most striking feature in the room was a sharp, three-sided rock that jutted down from the ceiling like an inverted pyramid. This stone hung directly over the table. The point of the pyramid poised just inches above the table's surface. Billy felt pleased with his find. It seemed to be a perfect hideout. He decided not to show it to his brothers or his buddies. This would be his own special secret. When he left the cave, he camouflaged the opening so that no other hiker or hunter would accidentally discover it. These were the better times of his youth, the good memories, tramping the woods, sleeping under the stars, fishing for his breakfast, hunting for his supper with his twenty-two rifle, Billy's marksmanship improved until he could shoot squirrels at fifty yards and every time hit them right between the eyes. In fact, it became a matter of sportsmanship with him that unless a squirrel looked in his direction, he wouldn't pull the trigger. And he became no less skilled with the shotgun, easily dropping any game bird in mid-flight. One evening in the fall of 1923, 14-year-old Billy was walking home with his cousin Jimmy Poole. The two had been bird hunting that afternoon, but now their thoughts were elsewhere, joking, laughing, and jostling one another. Unfortunately, Jimmy had neglected to unload his shotgun. Suddenly the shot went off, blasting into Billy's legs at close range. Billy collapsed, shrieking in pain. Jimmy dropped to his knees, babbling, I'm sorry, Billy, I'm so sorry, it was an accident, I didn't mean to... Then he got a good look at his friend's legs. Jimmy's face turned white. Billy, don't try to move. I'll go for help. No, don't leave me, Billy screamed. But Jimmy was already running like a jackrabbit. When Billy looked down at his legs, he was horrified to see that they were almost blown in two. He flopped his head back on the ground and shook with fear. God, have mercy on me, he groaned. You know I never did. Then he stopped, trying to think of something good about his life, something that might influence God to have mercy on him. The only thing he could think of was, God, have mercy on me. You know I never did commit adultery. Soon Jimmy was back with a neighbor, Frankie Eich, who drove Billy to Clark County Memorial Hospital. 
Billy screamed in agony while the nurses cut off big chunks of flesh with scissors and cleaned the gaping wounds as best they could. Mr. Ike held Billy's hand. When the nurses finished, they had to pry Billy's fingers free from Mr. Ike's wrists. An X-ray revealed buckshot lying so close on either side of the arteries that one small scratch could cut the veins and Billy would start bleeding. These were the days before blood transfusions. If Billy lost too much blood, it would be fatal. That night, Billy slept fitfully. At times, only whimpering. At other times, moaning from the pain. Sometime past midnight, he woke to a splashing noise. Feeling down by his mangled legs, his hand dipped into a pool of blood. He rang the bell for the nurses, but the only thing they could do was soak up the blood with towels and wrap the bandages a little tighter. The next morning, the nurses wheeled Billy into the operating room and gave him ether to put him out. Doctor Reeder did what he could to repair the damage, but because Billy was so weak, the doctor did not think the boy would make it. Besides Billy's mother and father, two ladies stood by him through this ordeal: Mrs. Stewart, a friend of the family, and Mrs. Roeder, whose husband was superintendent at the local car works. Billy slept for eight hours under the anesthetic. When he finally opened his eyes, he saw Mrs. Roeder sitting next to his bed, crying because he was so close to death. He drifted back into sleep. And in the next hour, fell in and out of consciousness several times. Then something happened, something like a dream, but more vivid than a dream. Window glass clear, like he was actually there. And in this awareness, he sensed he was falling, falling through wispy clouds into a dark eternity, sinking down, down, down. There seemed to be no foundation to his world, nothing to stop his fall. He screamed, "Papa!" The words seemed flat and lifeless. "Mama!" he screamed. "Mama!" His mother wasn't there. "God!" he screamed. "Catch me!" His pitiful cries sounded hollow in the vast emptiness. Was the darkness unending? Had he passed beyond the realm of earth, beyond the reach of God? Maybe he would keep falling like this forever. Terror gripped him. Then faintly, ever so faintly, he heard noises. Spooky moaning noises. As he fell, the sounds grew louder until they were all around him. Groans and grunts. Now faces appeared in the darkness. Women's faces, hideous faces with green canker sores around their eyes and twisted mouths, groaning. Ah, 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 ah! Billy cried out, "Oh God, have mercy on me! Have mercy!" If you'll only let me go back and live, I promise you, I'll be a good boy. In an instant, he was back in the hospital room, his blurred vision focusing on his mother's dark, deep-set eyes. Her face brightened, and she hugged her son, weeping. Oh, Billy, Billy, we thought you were dead. Thank God you are alive. Alive, yes, but barely. There was no penicillin available in those days, and the savage wounds burned red with infection. His stay in the hospital stretched into weeks. The Branhams had no money for hospital bills, so Mrs. Roeder mounted a charity drive on Billy's behalf. Between her church aid society, the Masons, the Ku Klux Klan, and private donations, all the medical expenses were eventually paid in full. Finally, the doctors said Billy had improved enough to go home. Unfortunately, his ordeal was a long way from over. At home, he was still bedridden. Months passed, and his legs did not get any better. Billy tossed on his straw-tick mattress, 
through many dark and painful hours, thinking about that strange experience where he had been sinking into such a dreadful darkness. It had seemed so real, so vivid. Where had he been? The doctors had later told him about his physical condition at the time. His pulse had been dropping steadily, so that they were sure he was dying. Billy wondered if he could have been falling into hell. It bothered him. He thought, "Oh, let it be that I'll never go to a place like that. Let it be that no other human being will ever have to go to a place like that." Then he thought about what he had promised God. If you'll only let me live, I promise I'll be a good boy. What did it mean to be a good boy? And who was God anyway? The whole experience puzzled him. As the frigid winter warmed into the spring of 1924, it became apparent that Billy's wounds were getting worse, not better. His calves had swollen to twice their normal size and had doubled back to his thighs, so that he couldn't straighten out his legs. Doctor Reeder diagnosed his condition as blood poisoning, caused from the debris that was left in his wounds. Again, Billy's life hung in jeopardy. The doctor recommended that both his legs be amputated at the hips. Billy could not bear the thought of losing his legs. How could he hunt and tramp the woods? He might as well be dead. With absolute determination, he refused to have his legs amputated, saying tearfully, "No, doctor, just come up higher and take them off up here." And with his hand, he drew a line across his neck. There is a chance you could make it, even if we don't amputate," Doctor Reeder replied. We could go in and try to clean the foreign material out of the wounds. It's a small chance, but it might work. This was a small chance Billy was willing to take. So, seven months after his shotgun accident, Billy again lay on the operating table. Doctor Reeder and Doctor Pearl, a specialist from Louisville, reopened his wounds and carefully searched through the flesh, picking out the bits of greasy hunting clothes, flecks of shotgun wads, and as much lead buckshot as they could find. Then they sutured the incisions closed and hoped for the best. Billy slept many hours under the anesthesia. Coming out from limbo into the bright lights of consciousness, Billy had another striking experience, every bit as vivid and real as the previous one, but very different. This time, he knew he was wide awake because he was lying on the hospital bed, looking directly at his father. The hospital room blurred, and suddenly he seemed to be standing out west on a prairie. Cactus and bunch grass grew in every direction, all the way to the horizon. A huge golden cross hung in the sky in front of him, glowing like the sun and throwing out beams of light. As Billy raised his hand towards the emblem, some of those beams of light seemed to flow directly into his chest. Then the experience ended. Billy found himself back in the hospital room, looking at his father. The operation was a success. Chapter Six: The Crushing Blow, covering the years 1925 to 1927. Growing up next to a moonshine operation distorted William Branham's view of the opposite sex. Many times he watched married women slip into the shed after dark to carouse all night with men who were not their husbands. By morning, these women would often be so drunk that the men would give them coffee and walk them in circles. Trying to sober them up enough so that they could stagger home to cook breakfast for their families. Such behavior disgusted Billy. He thought, if that's the way they are, I wouldn't have one of the varmints if they lawed me to one. As a result of this negative exposure, 
Billy grew up to hate any social event that might bring him in contact with girls. Whether it was a birthday party or a barn dance, Billy went to great lengths to avoid it. At the first hint of festive preparations, he would note the time and place and make sure he was busy somewhere else at the appointed hour. Occasionally, his mother and father invited the neighbors over for a rousing shindig. On those nights, Billy would take his lantern and his dog and plunge into the backwoods, hunting raccoons and opossums for half the night. When he would finally come home, if the musicians were still sawing away on their fiddles, Billy would climb to the top of the woodshed and sleep until daylight. Quitting school did not solve any of Billy's problems; it only rearranged them. He still had to struggle with constant rejection. Most of the local boys didn't like him because he wouldn't smoke or drink, and the girls didn't like him because he wouldn't go to dances and parties. No one understood him. What was worse, Billy didn't understand himself. Even though he liked people and longed to be accepted by them, he couldn't bring himself to act like the other boys his age. He thought, "Well, if I have to be an outcast, then I'll be a trapper." When I get to be of age and can get enough money somewhere to help take care of my mother, I'll go to Colorado or Washington State, or maybe up into British Columbia, and I'll be a trapper. I'll take my rifle and traps and get me a bunch of dogs, and I'll live there until I die, and I'll never get married. Billy always considered his mother whenever he made long-range plans. It distressed him that she suffered so many hardships because of his father's low life. By the time she was thirty, she was the mother of eight boys, the oldest being fifteen. There was never enough money, never enough clothes, and often there was not enough food. Billy had seen her sit crying on the doorstep with a baby in her arms, locked out of her own house, while Charles lay inside, drunk and unconscious, the whole night. And yet, through it all, Ella Branham had lived true to her husband and continually struggled to keep her family clothed. Fed and as happy as possible, Billy loved her for her decency. But even more, he loved her because she accepted him just as he was, with all of his peculiarities included. He felt she deserved more from life, and he considered her welfare to be part of his responsibility. Her example gave Billy hope that there were other decent women in the world. Around 1926, a new girl moved into town, developing a friendship with Jimmy Poole's girlfriend. Since Jimmy and Billy chummed a lot. Billy bumped into this new girl at Jimmy's house. Her beauty dazzled him. He thought she had eyes like a dove, teeth as white as pearls, and a neck as graceful as a swan's. When Jimmy introduced him to her, the girl fluttered her eyes and said coquettishly, "How do, Billy?" That was it. Billy was hooked. Later, Jimmy played the part of go-between. I think she likes you, Billy. Billy melted inside. You think so? Sure, she does. Tell you what, why don't we go on a double date? We'll take them for a ride in my dad's old Ford. That is, if I can get the thing started. I don't know," Billy said nervously. "Sure, we'll have a great time, but we'll need some cash. How much money can you scrape up?" Billy hesitated, then decided that if this gorgeous girl really did like him, he ought to splurge. "I've got thirty cents." That pleased Jimmy. Good. I've got thirty-five cents. That should be enough. Besides gas, we've got to get them some soft drinks or ice cream or something. Billy had an idea that might throw him into better light with this girl. Tell you what, Jimmy. Why don't you do the driving and I'll do the buying? Sounds okay to me.
They had to jack the back wheels off the ground and hand crank the engine a dozen times before the old Model T kicked over. The sun had set by the time they picked up their girls. Billy and his date sat in the back seat. Bashful as ever, Billy scooted as far as he could to one side while she sat on the other. He hoped that the space between them and the darkness would hide his shabby clothes. With the top down, they chugged along the moonlit country lanes, going no place in particular. In the front seat, Jimmy and his girlfriend were doing all the chattering. Billy sat quietly, sneaking glimpses at his date. He thought how radiant she looked in the moonlight, and his heart swelled with pride to think that such beauty would go out with him. Maybe girls weren't all bad. She looked his way and smiled. It's a pretty night, isn't it? Billy said, "Yes, ma'am." There's a dance tonight at the Sycamore Garden," she said. "Let's go down there." Billy stiffened. "No, ma'am, I don't think I want to. I don't dance." They wandered round the countryside for a while longer until they came to a roadside grocery store. Billy and Jimmy had it all planned out what they were going to do. Billy cleared his throat. "Jimmy, I'm kind of thirsty. Don't you think we ought to stop?" "Good idea, Billy." Jimmy stepped out front and then said, "I'll go in and get us something to eat and drink." This too was staged because Jimmy didn't even have a penny in his possession. They'd spent twenty-five cents on two gallons of gas, leaving forty cents, which Billy had nestled in his pocket. Billy said, "Never mind, Jimmy. I'll go get it." The sandwiches cost a nickel apiece. Four big ham sandwiches smothered with onions. Billy had just enough money left to buy four cokes. They ate in the car, enjoying the sound of the crickets and the cool night air. Billy was feeling good. This girl actually liked him. Tonight he was part of the gang, a real somebody. They finished their cokes, and Billy took the glass bottles inside the grocery to get his deposit refunded. When he came back, the three of them were sitting in the car smoking. Billy could scarcely believe his eyes. His date, that pretty little girl, smoking a cigarette. She tilted her head back, blowing smoke out through her nose. Billy sickened. He climbed in the back seat and plopped down heavily. His girl asked, "Do you want a cigarette, Billy?" "No, ma'am," he said sullenly. "I don't smoke." She looked peeved. "Billy Branham, what is the matter with you? First you tell me you don't dance. Now you tell me you don't smoke. What do you like to do?" "I like to hunt and fish." How dull! She drew up her upper lip in disgust. Here, Billy, smoke this cigarette and liven up your life. No, ma'am, I don't believe I want to do it. You mean to tell me we girls have got more nerve than you do? She sneered. Why, you big sissy! Sissy! That horrible word hurt worse than if a beaver trap had snapped shut on his ankle. Sissy! Pain seared through his heart. Sissy, not him. He was Big Bad Bill, the hunter, the trapper, the fighter. Sissy, he would show her. Hand me a cigarette, he ordered. Smugly, she tapped one from the pack and handed it over. Billy said, "Give me a match." Now that's more like a man, she said, and handed him a match. Billy struck the match and lifted both match and cigarette towards his mouth at the same time, one in each hand. But before the cigarette touched his lips, he heard a noise. It sounded like leaves swirling in the wind. He lowered the cigarette and listened intently. He couldn't hear it any more. He thought, 
Ah, that's just my imagination. His girl asked, "What's the matter, Billy?" He shook his head. Nothing. I'm just trying to light it. Again, he raised the cigarette towards his mouth. Again, he heard that sound, louder this time, a low, steady wind rising, growing more forceful until it was roaring in his ears. Whoosh! His hands froze halfway to his mouth. His mind flashed back to that deep voice in the poplar tree, warning, "Don't ever drink or smoke or defile your body in any way." There will be a work for you to do when you get older. His hands began to tremble. The match burned up to his fingers, and he dropped it. Then he dropped the cigarette. He started to cry. The girl snickered. Now I know you're a sissy. Angry, frustrated, and scared, Billy pushed open the car door, jumped out, and started walking down the road, still crying. Jimmy drove up beside him. Come on, get in, Bill. Billy shook his head. No, Jimmy. And just kept on walking. Jimmy putted alongside, urging him to get in the car. But at the same time, Billy's date was mocking him unmercifully. Billy Branham, you great big sissy! I thought you was a man. Billy sobbed. I thought I was too. And he turned off the road, cutting across a field where the car could not follow. He walked mechanically until he was over a hill, out of sight of the road. Then he hunched down on the ground, sobbing to the moon, "I'm not fit for nobody. I can't have friends. I'm a black sheep among the boys. Nobody likes me. What am I living for? What is the use? Oh, if there was some way I could die here and end it all. I'm a prisoner to this strange something, and I don't know what to do." He sobbed until his emotions were spent. Then he just sat there, staring at the moon, feeling as dead as that lifeless ball of rock out in space. Suddenly, he felt something strange, like a pressure pushing against his skin. He had this uncanny perception that he was not alone. Holding his breath, he carefully listened. No sound could be heard. He looked all around him in a field awash with moonlight. There was no one in sight, and yet Billy sensed that someone. Or something was standing very close to him. A chill inched up his spine. Terrified, he took off running for home. Such experiences let Billy know that his life differed from the ordinary in more ways than just poverty. Strange incidents kept popping up to torment him, like the time he brushed into a fortune teller. He and Jimmy Poole were at a carnival, strolling down the midway, listening to the barkers extolling the virtues. Of the various games and exhibits, the two boys walked past a fortune teller's tent. Outside the tent flap stood a young gypsy woman. "Say you," the gypsy called out. "Come here a minute." Both boys turned around. "You with the striped sweater," she added. Billy was the one wearing a striped sweater. He walked over to the fortune teller, thinking that perhaps she wanted him to get her a coke and a sandwich. "Yes, ma'am. What can I do for you?" She said, "Do you know that there's a light following you?" That struck Bill as an odd thing to say. A light? What do you mean? She explained, "I see you were born under a sign. Three major planets in conjunction in your first house, and they're all squaring Neptune, very deep. That's why there's a light following you. You were born for a divine call." Billy spooked. Look, woman, shut up! He snapped, and he got away from there fast. Later, he told his mother about it. She said, 
Billy, you did the right thing. Those fortune tellers are of the devil. That bothered him. Why would someone so obviously connected with the devil single him out as having what did that gypsy call it? A divine call? Unable to understand himself, Billy grew more and more dissatisfied with his situation. Why did he always seem to be an odd duck who could not fit in with his peers? And home was no refuge either. Although Charles had by now moved his family out of the cabin on Mr. Wathan's property and into a larger house on the outskirts of Jeffersonville, life at home was still cramped and chaotic. In August of 1927, Ella Branham had her ninth child. James Donald, that made nine boys, ages one to eighteen, all living and fighting in one house. As always, Billy found his greatest peace by wandering the woodlands with his dog Fritz. Then came the crushing blow. Mister Short, a local sheriff's deputy, poisoned Fritz with dog glutton. Billy went berserk with hatred. Charles caught his son stomping towards the police station, rifle in hand. I'm going to kill him, Papa," Billy snarled, quivering with anger. Charles jerked the rifle away from his hot-headed son. "Not if I can help it, you won't." Billy went back to his dog's grave, knelt down, and took off his hat. "Fritz, you've been a friend to me, a real companion. You've clothed me and fed me. You sent me to school. When you got old, I was going to take care of you. But now, Mister Short has killed you before your time." I promise you, Fritz, that he won't live. Some day I'll catch him walking on the street, and I'll run right over him with a car. I'll get him for you. Now that his best friend was gone, Billy felt the need for a change in his life more than ever. So he crossed the river to Louisville, Kentucky, and signed up for the Navy. When he told his mother that night, she was furious. The next morning, she marched over to the Navy recruiting office and persuaded them to strike her son's name from their roster. Billy realized that if he was going to make a drastic move, he should do it secretly. Later that fall, he got his chance. He knew a man named Francisco who was getting ready to drive out west to Phoenix, Arizona. Billy mentioned that he planned on going west himself some day. Mister Francisco took the hint and asked Billy to go with him. Even offering to pay him if he would help drive on the two thousand mile car trip, Billy snatched up the offer, and soon they were ready to leave. Billy told his mother he was going to camp out for a week or two at Tunnel Mill. That way, he could leave town without her trying to talk him out of it. When he got to Arizona, he would write her a letter and explain. Chapter Seven: Fleeing to the Desert. Covering the years 1927 to 1929, when William Branham arrived in Phoenix, Arizona, Mr. Francisco paid him three dollars for helping with the driving. That was all the money Billy had in the world, but he wasn't worried. He was sure some opportunity would turn up. It was December in the year 1927. He was 18 years old and bursting with enthusiasm at his new chance in life. After sending a letter of explanation home to his mother, Billy set off to explore the town. Soon he happened upon an informal rodeo. That made him think, "I'm a real good rider. Since I'm broke, why not get myself some easy money at this rodeo? But I'll have to get me a pair of chaps before I go out there in front of all those cowboys." He walked down the street to the nearest clothing store and tried on a pair of leather chaps. They were magnificent. 
The word Arizona was embossed on the belt, and they had a steer head worked into each legging with brass buttons for eyes. But they were far too long. The leather leggings dragged on the floor. Billy looked at himself in the mirror and thought, "I look like a bantam rooster, mostly fluff and feathers." The store clerk said, "This pair is twenty-five dollars, sir." Billy was glad for an excuse to turn them down. I'm afraid three dollars is all the money I've got. The clerk suggested, "You'd better compromise with a pair of Levi jeans." Billy bought a pair of Levi jeans and a cowboy hat, then returned to the rodeo. On top of one fence sat a line of bow-legged, disfigured cowboys that looked like they had been through a few cattle drives and range wars. Billy thought, "That's where I belong." He climbed up on the fence beside them. Everyone around him was murmuring with excitement. Billy had arrived just when a famous rider was mounting a notorious wild stallion. The horse was boxed into a stall not far away. Billy watched the long-legged rider drop down on the saddle, and he thought, "If this fellow can't ride that horse, then I will." The instant the gate sprang open, that horse snorted and leaped from its stall with all four feet in the air. When it hit the ground, it bounded up again, twisting its body and kicking its hind legs all at once. The rider sailed from the saddle like a straw scarecrow, landed with a bone-jarring thud, and lay motionless in the middle of the corral, blood pouring from his nose. While the pickup man caught the stallion and put it back in the pen, others loaded the unconscious cowboy into an ambulance and drove him away. A man rode slowly along the fence where Billy sat with all those leathery cowboys. He said, "I'll give fifty dollars to any man who can stay on that horse for thirty seconds." The man kept stopping to look a cowboy in the eyes and repeat his offer. No one took him on. Then the man stopped in front of Billy and asked, "Are you a rider?" "No, sir," Billy said sheepishly. Billy hired on at a cattle ranch northwest of Phoenix, near a small town called Wickenburg. His horse riding skills quickly improved until soon he was doing his share of the ranch work. A real cowboy, just like he had dreamed he would be. The beauty of the prairie surpassed his wildest imaginations. Around him, rugged mountains jutted up from the prairie floor. Giant saguaro cacti dotted the desert flats and the sloping canyon walls. The desert was a picture of diversity, abounding with prickly pear, a small cactus that looked like a beaver tail with long, wicked spikes. The pincushion cactus, which was covered so thickly with tiny needles that it looked like fur, the barrel cactus, which looked like a barrel with spiny ribs, and the low bushy trees known by their Spanish name of palo verde, meaning green stick. The elusive wildlife also fascinated him: Gila monsters, sidewinder rattlesnakes, kangaroo rats, and javelina hogs. It was all so exotic, so different from the woodlands of the Ohio River Valley. And to think, here he was in the middle of it, on a horse, kicking up prairie dust, working with cowboys and longhorn steers. This was living. What could be better? He felt as though he had stepped into one of those romantic western movies he had watched when he was a boy. But after a year and a half of ranch work, the illusion of perfection began to wear off. As the summer of 1929 plodded on, Billy grew increasingly dissatisfied. Many times he wondered what was wrong. He had come to the desert to find peace and fulfillment, but somehow peace and fulfillment were eluding him. He was not happy, not entirely. Something was still missing in his life, but what?
Finally, it came time for the fall roundup. Throughout every summer, many local ranchers grazed their herds on the same rangelands high up in the mountains, where the grass grew thick between the tall pine trees. Every fall, they worked together to round up the scattered cattle, herding them down to the valley ranches, then separating them by brands. Last year, Billy had regarded the fall roundup as the most exciting thing he had ever done, but this year he was troubled by the same uneasiness that had dogged him all summer. What was wrong? When evening came on the trail, Billy slipped the saddle off his horse and set it near the campfire for a pillow. After supper, he leaned back against his saddle to watch the sun dip behind the mountains, flinging brilliant orange, pink, and red streamers into the sky. An old Texan named Slim tuned his guitar. Each night, Slim serenaded the desert with cowboy ballads, accompanied by another cowboy who blew through a comb, making a piece of paper buzz in harmony. Slim sang, "Last night, as I lay on the prairie, I gazed at the stars in the sky, and I wondered if ever a cowboy could drift to that sweet by and by. There's a road to that bright, happy region, and the trail there is dim." So they say, but the broad one that leads to perdition is posted and blazed all the way. They speak of another great owner, and he's never overstocked. So they say, he'll always make room for a sinner that'll drift on the straight narrow way. They say he will never forsake you, and he knows every action and look. For safety, we'd better get branded, have our name in his great tally book. For they say there will be a great roundup when cowboys like dogies will stand to be marked by the riders of judgment, who are posted and know every brand. I guess I will be a stray yearling, just a man that's condemned to die. I'll be cut in the bunch with the rusties when the boss of those riders comes by. Billy understood what the words of the ballad implied. Stray yearlings were unbranded cattle that ended up as soup meat. And what about the great owner with his tally book? Billy wondered if that could be what was troubling him. Was it something to do with God? Slim strummed another tune. This time, an old church hymn. Down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to His name. Listening to that slow, lingering melody, Billy felt a distinct ache in his heart. He turned over and pulled the blanket up around his head, leaving just enough space for his eyes and nose. The stars seemed so close, as though they were pasted just above the mountains. In the everlasting whisper of the breeze through the pine trees, Billy imagined he heard God calling him as he had called his first son gone astray, Adam, Adam, where art thou? After three weeks, the roundup ended. The cowboys headed back to the ranch to get their paychecks and to read their mail. Billy had a letter waiting from his mother, postmarked a few weeks earlier. Among other bits of news, she mentioned that Edward was very sick. Billy took it lightly, supposing his brother had a cold or the flu. That afternoon, all the cowboys drove down into Phoenix to celebrate. Although Billy did not feel as festive as the others, he hagged along for the change of scenery. When the ranch hands filed into a saloon. Billy wandered off down the street by himself. His heart still felt troubled. What was wrong? He definitely was not homesick. He loved Arizona, loved the desert, and enjoyed his work. But somehow he still felt hollow inside.
incomplete. He could not figure it out. A pretty little Spanish girl strolled by, fluttered her eyelashes at him, and dropped her white handkerchief. Billy, his thoughts elsewhere, said, "Hey, you dropped your hanky." The girl picked it up and continued walking. Billy heard some music coming from farther down the street. He followed the sound until he came to an empty rodeo arena. There, next to the bucking stalls, an old cowboy was strumming a guitar and singing, "Down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing for sin I cried. There, to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to His name." But this cowboy sang with more feeling than Slim did on the prairie. This man sang the hymn like he meant it. Tears were running down his pockmarked cheeks. At the end of the chorus, he turned to Billy and said, "Brother, you don't know what it is until you've received this wonderful Jesus Christ." And he started the chorus again, "Glory to His name." Billy pulled his hat down and walked away. His heart churned with inexpressible feelings. By the time Billy wandered back to the saloon, his fellow ranch hands were laughing uproariously, shooting at one another's toes to make each other dance, and betting one another five dollars they could walk a straight line. And every one of them so drunk they had trouble staying on the sidewalk. Billy herded them to the car and drove them back to Wickenburg. The next morning, when Billy entered the mess hall, he was given a note that said, "Bill, come out to the north pasture. Very important." Pop, an old Lone Star Ranger, was waiting for him by the corral gate. "I'm afraid I have bad news for you," Pop said. He handed Billy a telegram that read, "Your brother Edward died last night. Come home at once." The news stunned him. It was the first death he had experienced in his immediate family. He turned away from Pop and looked out across the yellow, sun-parched prairie, tears running down his cheeks. He thought of how hard life had been for the two of them as boys, going to school without enough clothes on, without school books or paper or pencils, and sometimes without enough food to eat. Then Billy remembered stealing that one handful of popcorn from his brother. Oh, if he could only go back and live it over, he would never steal such a treat from a poor, hungry friend. But he couldn't live it again. Now he couldn't even say he was sorry. Edward was gone. Billy wondered if Edward was ready to meet God. Then the thought struck him: How about himself? Was he ready to meet God? Billy returned to Jeffersonville for the funeral. At the conclusion of his sermon, Reverend McKinney said, "There may be some here who do not know God. If so, accept Him now." Billy gripped his seat to keep him from standing up. Something strange was tugging at his heart. Some kind of magnetism that he didn't understand. Whatever it was, it was making him miserable. After the funeral, Billy planned to go back to Arizona, but his mother begged so hard for him to stay in Indiana that Billy finally agreed, provided he could get some work. Soon he landed a job digging ditches to lay gas pipes for the local public service company, Public Service Indiana. He decided he would stay in Jeffersonville at least for a while. Snow fell late in the fall of 1929. When Billy woke up and saw the ground all white and cold, he took one of his mother's blankets, drove down to the cemetery, swept the snow off Edward's grave, then stretched the blanket over the fresh mound of dirt. He wanted Edward to be warm. Chapter Eight: The Sign Follows, covering the year 1929.
In October of 1929, the New York stock market crashed, plunging the United States into the worst economic nightmare it had ever seen. Thousands of banks locked their front doors while the helpless bankers tiptoed out the back, one step ahead of their angry depositors. Eventually, the Great Depression touched every area of the economy. Factories either cut back production or closed entirely. Farmers tightened their belts or went bankrupt. Unemployment rose sharply until one out of every four American workers languished in idleness. Although William Branham's job at the Jeffersonville Public Service Department paid only twenty cents an hour, he considered himself lucky to be working at all. He still planned to some day devote his life to fur trapping in the mountains out west, but for now his paycheck was needed at home. His father's health was failing due to his continued heavy drinking. Charles Branham, now thirty-eight years old, was not only out of work; his chances of getting a steady job and keeping it were slim. On November second, nineteen twenty-nine, Ella Branham bore her tenth and last child. Finally, after nine sons, finally she had a girl. Ella named her daughter Faye Dolores Branham, but she called her by her middle name. So, out of the eleven Branhams living in one house, only Billy had full-time employment. Billy felt an obligation to help support the rest of his family, at least for a few more years. Working for Public Service Indiana agreed with Billy's temperament. His job kept him outside year-round, and the tasks varied from week to week, so that he seldom was bored. One week he might be digging ditches to lay gas mains. Another week he might be reading meters or repairing gas leaks, or climbing power poles to repair electrical transmission lines. The only part of the job he disliked was turning off the electricity on customers who couldn't pay their bills, and with the depression deepening, that happened far too often to suit him. As glad as Billy was for his public service company job, still eight dollars a week did not stretch far in a household of eleven people. So, when he was offered part-time work as a deputy game warden for the state of Indiana, he jumped at the chance. It meant he would get out of town on a regular basis to patrol the backwoods. The thought of being paid for doing what he loved to do anyway seemed perfect. In reality, it never turned out that way. His pay was supposed to be a commission on the number of tickets he issued to game law violators, but Billy could never bring himself to write out a ticket. He felt that more good could be accomplished by sitting down with a poacher and lecturing him on the benefits of game conservation. And the importance of obeying state laws. In effect, Billy ended up donating his time. But to him, the satisfaction he gained from getting out of town and tramping the wooded countryside was reward enough. One day, Billy was scheduled to patrol Henryville State Park, twenty miles north of Jeffersonville. As soon as he boarded the Greyhound bus, a strange feeling swept over him, like a pressure, almost as though some unseen force was pushing against him. The bus was crowded. Passengers filled every seat, and many stood in the aisle. Billy jostled to the center of the bus, stopping between a hefty middle-aged woman and a sailor. The woman looked up and said, "Hello." As the bus rolled away from the station, Billy answered, "How do you do?" and gazed out the window, watching the houses glide by. That strange force was pushing against him more strongly now. It seemed to be coming from the heavy-set woman. Out of the corner of his eye, Billy could tell she was staring directly at his face. She made him feel uncomfortable. Soon she started a conversation. "Are you an officer?" 
Billy wore his game warden uniform with a pistol tucked into the holster at his side. I'm a conservation officer, he returned. You're lonesome, aren't you? Billy masked his surprise. No, ma'am, he lied. Well, you're not at your home, she said. I'm at as much of a home as I've got. She shook her head. No, you were born for the West. That shocked Billy as much as if she had poured ice water over his head. Say, what are you talking about? She said, maybe I'd better explain myself. You see, I'm an astrologer. Billy groaned inwardly, thinking, here's another one of them funny people. He moved away from her, closer to the sailor. She followed him, staggering a little with the rocking of the bus. She said, I'd like to talk with you a few minutes. Billy kept looking ahead, acting like he didn't hear her. She persisted. Could I speak with you just a moment? Billy ignored her. This is not very gentlemanly of me, but I don't want to talk to her. Yet the woman would not leave him alone. Say, you, conservation officer, could I speak with you a minute? Finally, Billy turned and said curtly, What do you want? He felt guilty for acting so rude, but he really did not want to talk with an astrologer. He remembered what that gypsy fortune teller had said to him at the carnival, and the memory made him uneasy. The woman asked, Are you a Christian? No, he snapped, and what's it to you? She shrugged. Oh, I just wondered, did you know that you were born under a sign? Bill swallowed hard. Look, lady, I don't want to know nothing about that, see? I know I'm being short with you, but I mean it. I don't want to know nothing about it. She retreated a little way. Oh, don't be so hard. Well, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but I don't know nothing about any religious things, and I don't want to know. Bill turned away from her and stared past the sailor towards the front of the bus. My, you shouldn't act like that. This has nothing to do with religion. I'm on my road to Chicago to see my son, who is a Baptist minister. I work in the White House. Did you know that the position of the stars affects events here on Earth? I know nothing about it, Billy said. She said, there's a sailor standing in front of you. Ask him if the moon doesn't control the tides. I've got sense enough to know that, Bill snapped. The woman continued, well, there are many other heavenly bodies that have significance on Earth. If I could tell you exactly when you were born, would you believe me? Billy frowned uncomfortably. You can't do it in the first place. She smiled. Oh, yes, I can. You were born on April 6, 1909, at five o'clock in the morning. Billy's gruff facade crumbled into astonishment. That's right. Now tell this sailor when he was born. She said, I can't do it. You see, you were born under a sign. Haven't ministers ever talked to you about this? I have nothing to do with preachers, nothing at all. The woman's eyes drifted away for a moment as her mind followed that thought. Isn't it strange that preachers wouldn't know that? Billy repeated, I don't fool around where they're at. She again focused her eyes on him. Look, I want to tell you something. You were born under a sign as a gift to mankind. If you could only recognize it. He interrupted, Maybe I'll be another Daniel Boone. I like to hunt, and I was born in Kentucky. No, that isn't what I'm talking about. Well, maybe I'll be a businessman. I've got a grammar school education. She did not seem amused. That's not what I'm talking about. I don't know what you'll be, but I can see by your aura that you were born as a gift. Do you remember the story about the wise men who were led by a star to the baby Jesus? I don't know nothing about religion.
But you have heard about the wise men coming to see the baby Jesus, haven't you? Yes. Well, what are wise men? Oh, they were just wise men. That's all I know. She explained. The wise men were the same thing I am. They were astrologers, stargazers. You know, before God does anything on earth, he always declares it in the heavens first. That's what he did when Jesus was born. Three heavenly bodies lined up and formed a conjunction that caught the attention of some astrologers living in the east. One of them was from the lineage of Ham, another Shem, and the other Japheth, the three sons of Noah. They represented all the peoples of the earth. Each of these three men traveled west separately, not knowing the others were coming until they met in Jerusalem. Then they went to Bethlehem and found the baby Jesus. They knew Jesus was the one they were looking for because of the color of his aura. You know what an aura is, don't you? It's the supernatural light of the soul. Everyone has an aura. They come in different colors, and each color means something. Gold means a gift from God. So these three wise men worshipped Jesus and gave him gifts. They departed just as those three heavenly bodies were separating into their individual orbits. In commemoration of the greatest gift God ever gave to mankind, His own son Jesus. Every time those three heavenly bodies come back in line, God sends a lesser gift to man. You were born at such a conjunction. You have a gold aura surrounding you. That's how I know the day and the hour of your birth, and that's how I know your destiny lies in the west. Out of courtesy, Bill had tried to listen patiently, but by now he had heard enough. Lady, all I know is that I am a game warden of Indiana. And I'm doing the best I can. I'm not religious, and I don't want to hear no more about it. Billy moved towards the front of the bus, putting the sailor between himself and the astrologer, effectively ending the conversation. Still, the incident was not easily forgotten, and it troubled his thoughts on more than one occasion. His life seemed so different from most people he knew, but a gift? What could that mean? And what was it about him that attracted these strange people? The fortune teller had said she saw a light following him. This astrologer had called it an aura. Billy could not put it together. The questions tumbled over and over around in his mind like cream in a butter churn. Why was he so different? Why had he sensed that acute pressure as soon as he boarded the Greyhound bus? And why was he so miserable when the subject of religion came up? Was he afraid? Maybe God was looking for him and he was trying to hide. And what did that woman mean when she said his destiny lay in the West? Chapter nine: His last chance, covering the years 1930 to 1932. As William Branham entered his twenties, he quite by accident stumbled upon a way to pick up extra cash. One day, he borrowed a Harley Davidson motorcycle. While he was speeding down a gravel road, he lost control of the machine and went skidding into a ditch in front of a training camp for boxers. Several men saw the accident and ran across the road to see if he was hurt. Fortunately, Billy was not seriously injured, but he felt too shaken to get up and ride away. So the men invited him to come inside and watch a few fights until he felt better. Just as Billy walked in the room, one of the trainers, a man named George Six Second Smith, Opened the door of a bird cage. Out flew a canary, darting around the room so fast that Smith couldn't catch it. But when the bird zipped past Billy's head, Billy snatched it out of mid-air. 
Six Second Smith whistled in admiration. I've never seen such quick hands in all my life. Young man, have you ever considered prize fighting? That offhand remark got Billy thinking about prize fighting, and soon he was spending much of his free time training for the sport, running seven to eight miles a day, then showing up at training camp where he would pound away at a punching bag until some boxer would ask him to fight with him in the ring. Watching Billy spar, Six Second Smith was soon more impressed with Billy's determination than with his speed. The trainer spent many hours with Billy, teaching him proper footwork, hand moves, and most important of all, how to take the beating from another fighter without collapsing. George Smith got his nickname after his first professional fight when he knocked out his opponent in six seconds flat. Smith was about eight years older than Billy, about thirty-five pounds heavier, and was the roughest man he had ever met in his life. The first time Billy climbed into the ring with his trainer. Six Second thrashed him mercilessly. One time, Smith hit Billy so hard that he sailed over the top of the ropes and crashed down into some folding chairs outside the ring. Billy took a long time getting up. When he finally got his breath back, he said, "Six, why do you have to do me that way?" Smith laughed and said, "This kind of sparring will do you the most good. Do me good? How can it do me any good? You're just about killing me." Look, Billy, I don't care how physically fit you are. Any time you're hit, it shocks your system and stops the flow of blood to the heart. In boxing, you have to learn how to take a hard punch and come right back. If your body is not used to coming back quick, you'll lay there and take the count. But if you're used to it, even if you're knocked down, you'll get right back up again. So that's the way I train. You might not like me now, but you'll appreciate me when you get into competition. Billy climbed back into the ring and continued. Eventually, he gained such control over himself that Six Second Smith could punch him in the stomach hard enough to slam him against the ropes, and it wouldn't bother Billy a bit. He was ready to keep fighting. As soon as he could last eight to ten rounds in sparring practice, he started fighting in Golden Gloves amateur boxing competition. Billy thrived on the ring. Whether just sparring or fighting for a prize, he gave it everything he had. Boxing released his emotions. The anger and confusion bottled up in him for so long fired his arms like shotgun blasts. His speed and determination carried him to one victory after another. Each triumph sparked more praise, and Billy's self-confidence soared. Never before had he experienced such recognition, such acceptance. He began to feel like he was somebody important. Boxing as an amateur, he never lost a fight. After a year in Golden Gloves competition, he turned professional. He won 15 professional matches in a row, including a regional bantamweight championship, which included boxers from three states. By now, he thought he was unbeatable. Then one night, he met his match. He was scheduled to fight Bill Pritchard, a championship boxer from West Virginia. The match was being held in Evansville, Indiana. Billy Branham drove to Evansville with his friend Howard McLean, a welterweight boxer who also had a match that evening. They ate dinner at three in the afternoon, then started walking back to the arena so they could rest a while before they had their hands wrapped for their fights. Billy was wearing a blue suit. He pulled a comb from his pocket and ran it through his thick, dark hair. Howard looked over at his companion and whistled. You know, Billy, you look like a little Baptist preacher. Billy flushed with anger. 
He was always touchy about insults, and in his mind, the word preacher was the same as sissy. Wait a minute, Howard. You better smile when you say that. Billy spread his legs and raised his fists. Even though Howard outweighed him by thirty pounds, Billy was ready to take him on. But Howard laughed, insisting it was only a joke. So Billy's fists came down. That night in the ring, Billy was surprised by the strength and speed of his opponent. Pritchard smashed into him with a fury that Billy could not equal. For the first time in his boxing career, Billy felt unsure of himself. Early into the match, when he first realized he was in trouble, he was still hoping he could fight Pritchard to a draw. But as the fight progressed and Billy absorbed repeated blows, he began to wonder if Pritchard was going to kill him. Toward the end of the fight, Billy was resting on his stool between rounds. He looked up at the ceiling and prayed silently. God, if you will let me come through this alive, I promise you I'll quit boxing. After that night, Billy never climbed into a boxing ring again. One day in the fall of 1931, Billy was repairing meters at the New Albany Gas Works. While testing for leaks, the fumes overcame his senses and he slumped to the floor. The after effects of this accident bothered him constantly. His head ached, his vision blurred, he had trouble eating. His stomach turned sour and ached whenever food touched it, and his digestive acids came up his throat to burn his mouth. His employer, Public Service Indiana, paid for him to visit several medical specialists in Louisville, Kentucky, but these doctors had difficulty isolating his problem. After repeated examinations, they finally guessed he had appendicitis. That surprised Billy because the pain localized in his stomach, not his side. But the specialist convinced him that the poisoning from the gas had merely confused the search, masking the symptoms of appendicitis. They insisted his appendix was inflamed and had to come out. Reluctantly, Billy agreed to let them operate, but only if he used a local anesthetic. He had terrifying memories of his operation at age fourteen, when his legs had been mangled by that shotgun blast. At that time, he almost did not come out from under the anesthesia. And he could never forget that horrible experience when he was floating down through the regions of the lost and drifting souls, the darkness, the mist, the loneliness, and those hideous faces. He never wanted to see that place again. Nervous and scared, Billy wanted someone near him during the operation who knew how to pray. So he asked the minister from the local First Baptist Church to stand by him. The appendix was successfully removed, and Billy was wheeled back to his room, lying fully conscious in his hospital bed. Billy felt his pulse getting weaker by the minute. He tried to contact the nurse, but his voice was a whisper, and his arms were too weak to move. His breathing became shallow. His heartbeat slowed until it scarcely beat at all. He thought, "Is this death? Am I going?" The light in his room dimmed. The walls blurred and took on shadowy shapes like trees. It seemed to be in a cold, dark forest. Somewhere off in the distance, he could hear a wind blowing, faint at first. The noise slowly increased, coming his way. Billy's mind roused with panic. This is it. This is death coming to take me. He tried to pray, but he could not find words. Closer and closer, the wind came until the limbs of the trees around him shook with its force. Then everything changed. The dark woods suddenly disappeared, and Billy found himself standing in the shadow of a huge silver poplar. 
It was the same tree he had avoided ever since it had scared him so badly as a boy. The air felt static and oppressive, like a day with 99% humidity. The sound of the rustling leaves turned Billy's eyes upward. He saw that same whirlwind circling in the upper branches, heard that same deep voice say, Don't ever drink or smoke or defile your body in any way. I called you and you would not go. Billy's mind snapped back to that day so many years before when this voice had said, There's a work for you to do when you get older. Now the voice repeated its accusation. I called you and you would not go. Billy felt terrified. Had he missed the reason for his life? Was it too late? Frantically he asked aloud, Who called and who are you? And what did you want me to do? The voice repeated a third time, I called you and you would not go. Billy cried out, Jesus, if that is you, let me go back again to earth and I will preach your gospel from the housetops and street corners. I'll tell everyone about it. In an instant, Billy was back in his hospital bed. His heart beat strong and his lungs drew deep. He was going to live. The surgeon standing by his bed was noticeably surprised to see Billy's cheeks flushed red and his strength return so quickly. Turning to Charles and Ella Branham, he commented, I'm not a church-going man. My practice is so large I haven't had time. But I know God has visited this boy. Out of necessity, Billy returned to work as soon as his stitches could stand the stress. Unfortunately, the operation did not cure any of his original symptoms. Through the winter of 1931 and 32, his condition grew steadily worse. His stomach rejected almost everything he tried to eat, forcing him to live on barley water and prune juice. Even that rested poorly. His eyes developed astigmatism, and he couldn't see without thick glasses. Whenever he took the glasses off, his head shook so much that a barber couldn't even cut his hair. The specialists in Louisville were stumped. After a battery of examinations, one doctor said, Mr. Branham, I'm afraid your condition is hopeless. Your stomach is one big knot of sores. You will have to eat a strict, soft diet the rest of your life. Never forget that, because one mouthful of solid food will kill you. Billy returned home sick and depressed, but at least he was alive. Now he was determined to find God so that he could keep his promise. He began reading through the Bible in earnest. The further he read, the more encouraged he grew. He could actually identify with some of the experiences he was reading about, such as when men and women heard the voice of God speaking directly to them. Could that have been God speaking to him out of that poplar tree when he was a boy? He had suspected it was, but was never completely convinced until he read where God spoke to Job out of a whirlwind. That convinced him. Then as he plunged into the lives of Jesus, Peter, and Paul, Billy Branham burned with excitement. Here were explanations for those strange trance-like states he experienced, where he would be wide awake and suddenly find that he was somewhere else, seeing something take place that looked as real as the shoes on his feet. The Bible called them visions. Maybe his life wasn't so strange after all. Maybe it was just God dealing with him. Billy started visiting different churches in the area asking how he might encounter God. But instead of finding general agreement and a clear-cut path, he found conflicting opinions which fostered confusion. 
The First Baptist Church wanted to put his name on their church registry, and they would give him a letter of acceptance. The Lutherans wanted him to attend confirmation classes. The Catholics said he needed to acknowledge the Pope as the supreme authority of God on earth and attend Mass every Sunday. The Seventh-day Adventists told him he needed to observe Saturday as the Sabbath. Each church felt it had a monopoly on truth, to the exclusion of the rest. Billy didn't know what to do. He had no idea where to find God. Then he thought, You know, I've seen him in nature. I think I'll go talk to him out in the woods. He hiked to one of his favorite hunting spots, but it didn't help. He didn't know what to say, and he felt silly talking when there did not seem to be anyone there to listen. Then he got an idea. Why not write God a letter? It seemed like a good plan. So he wrote, Dear Sir, I know you pass down this path here because I sit here squirrel hunting, and I know you come by. I want you. Would you come talk with me sometime? I want to tell you something. Billy Branham Tacking this letter to a tree, Billy went home, figuring he would return later to see if anything positive had come of it. But the next day he had some doubts, thinking, Now, wait a minute. I never seen anybody out there in the woods. Beside, if God is everywhere, then I should be able to reach him in town just as easily as in the country. But that brings me around again to my original problem. I want to talk to God, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. He went to the old shed behind the house and shut the door. The inside of the shed dripped with moisture from a rain the night before. Ignoring the damp earth, Billy knelt beside a wrecked Model T Ford. His mind was glued to his purpose. Desperate to speak with his creator, he muttered, Now, how do I do this? I've seen pictures of people praying, and I believe they put their hands like this. He put his hands together, flat, in front of him in the classic pose of prayer. Now, what am I going to say? There's some way you have to do this, and I don't know what it is. He decided the only way he was going to get anywhere was to blunder ahead and try. Dear Sir, I wish that you would come and speak with me just a moment. I want to tell you how bad I am. He stopped to listen. The shed remained perfectly quiet. Maybe I was supposed to put my hands like this. He interlocked his fingers and tried again. Dear Sir, I don't know just exactly how to do this, but I trust you'll understand. Will you help me? He stopped again to listen. Nothing. By this time, his self-restraint broke down completely. Tears flooded his eyes as he gushed, Sir, even if you don't talk to me, I'm going to talk to you anyhow. Mr. God, I'm no good. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm sorry I've neglected you all these years. But now I want you. Please come talk to me. Suddenly his body felt strange. When he opened his eyes, he lifted his head. A chill of fear shot up his spine. Floating in front of him was a brilliant amber light, forming a perfect cross in the air. Out of the depths of its energy came a voice speaking in a language like none Billy had ever heard before. Then it vanished. Billy stayed on his knees, breathless and numb, unable to move. Finally, he mustered the strength to say, Sir, I don't understand your language, but I gather I'm supposed to be reckoned somewhere in that cross and my sins are supposed to lay in there. If you will forgive me, then just come back and talk in your language again. 
If you can't talk in my language, I'll understand by that. The cross appeared again, radiant with heat and light. Billy closed his eyes and stretched out his arms. He experienced a peculiar sensation that felt like warm raindrops were pelting his body. Suddenly he felt peaceful and free, as though a hundred-pound load had been lifted off his shoulders. When he opened his eyes, the light was gone. Thrilled to overflowing, Billy ran from the shed and burst into the house. Startled, his mother asked, Billy, what's wrong? Are you nervous? No, ma'am. Something wonderful just happened. What is it? I don't know, but I feel so good. He dashed back outside looking for a channel to release his joy. A railroad track ran behind their house. Billy scrambled up the embankment and ran down the track, stopping now and then to jump in the air and punch with his fists, shadowboxing to vent his feelings. At last, at long last, he had found God in the cross of Jesus Christ. A few days later, Ella said, Billy, I had a dream about you last night. I saw you standing on a white cloud preaching to all the world. That struck Billy as very peculiar because his mother almost never dreamed.